Good morning. Uh, we're reading from Deuteronomy, starting with chapter 5, verses 1 to 21, the Ten Commandments. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the fire. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to declare you to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your town, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, neither shall you commit adultery, neither shall you steal, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbour. Neither shall you covet your neighbour's wife, neither shall you desire your neighbour's house, or field, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Reading from chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Thanks, Debbie, for leading our worship this morning. It's really good to have you here with us at Bloomsbury. We're already benefiting, I know, from the ministry that you're bringing as part of your, your uh, working towards your calling as a minister uh, yourself within the MCC Church. Um, it feels like a lifetime has passed, but it's only been three weeks. Uh, it's just we did a lot because we were on holiday. But just before Liz and I went off on our big South American adventure, uh, those of you who were here may remember that I preached the concluding sermon 
of what was our short summer series looking at the Sabbath. Lots of S's. And I spoke about the principle of Sabbath as resistance to coercion, drawing on Walter Brueggemann's excellent book, Sabbath as Resistance. Well, now I'm back, we find ourselves in the lectionary readings for the autumn. And as they take us through the revelation of God in the Hebrew Bible, we once again find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and at the Ten Commandments. So today's sermon is a kind of follow-on from the one uh, a few weeks ago, and I want us to return to our exploration of the principle of Sabbath. But this time, and again drawing on Walter Brueggemann, I want us to think about Sabbath as resistance to anxiety. Sabbath as resistance to anxiety. In many ways, I think anxiety might be the defining feature of Christianity in our time. Sure, it's out there in society beyond the church, of course. The number of people seeking help through medicine and therapy for anxiety-related illnesses continues to grow and grow. There is much to be anxious about in the world and in our own lives. And if you're part of that number, as many of us are, who live with personal anxiety, I can speak from my own experience that help is available and it is worth seeking sooner rather than later. But today, I want us to think about anxiety as a communal rather than an individual response to stress and particularly to the way in which church communities, which includes our own here at Bloomsbury, experience anxiety. As I've said, there is much to be anxious about. Let's name it. The decline in church attendance is widespread across all the historic denominations. It just is harder to be the churches that we once were. It's harder to fill the rotors, harder to raise the money, harder to do the good that we long to do. It's just hard. I remember having a conversation with my former colleague Ruth a few years ago, and we were discussing what personality Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church had. Uh, we were kind of imagining the congregation as a person, thinking about what they'd be like to, to be with, to talk to. It's an interesting mind exercise if you ever feel like pondering it. And Ruth's diagnosis stayed with me. She said that Bloomsbury personified would be a person living with chronic anxiety. Now this is not to say that this is true of every person sat here today, although it will be true for some of us. But rather it's to say that collectively the pressures on us as a congregation in central London are such that anxiety is an entirely natural and appropriate response. And so we come to Sabbath, and Sabbath keeping as an act of resistance to anxiety. 
Now, depending on your background and upbringing, you may not naturally think of Sabbath keeping as an antidote to anxiety, because in many parts of the Christian world, frankly, it becomes precisely the opposite. Largely out of a misunderstood Puritan heritage, Sabbath keeping has often become enmeshed in its own unique and particular brand of legalism and moralism and life-denying practices that contradict the freedom-bestowing intention of Sabbath. Such distortions, moreover, have led to an endlessly wearying round of quarrels about Sunday activities. Do you remember the Keep Sunday special campaign when they first mooted widening the Sunday trading laws? Debates in family circles about whether you can go to the cinema or, goodness me, God forbid, a pub on a Sunday. I know one family who uh, my mum used to work with uh, somebody from this family at, uh, at, a, at a mission organisation. Uh, this family had decreed that no cooking should be done on a Sunday. And so the wife, of course it was the wife, the wife had to do all the cooking for Sunday on a Saturday night, leaving it all in the oven on a low setting overnight so that they had food to eat when they got home from church the next day. This is not freedom from anxiety. Rather, I think it amounts to a pitiful misrepresentation of Sabbath keeping. But when taken seriously in faith by Jews and derivatively by Christians, Sabbath keeping can be a way of maintaining and enacting a, a counter identity that refuses to be entirely subsumed by the mainstream identity of the world that we live in. Too often, society enacts what are essentially anti-human practices, encouraging the worship of anti-human gods. And understood properly, Sabbath is a bodily act of testimony to an alternative way of being human. It can be enacted in resistance to the pervading values and assumptions that build up on people in anxiety-inducing ways. And so, I do think that understood properly, Sabbath can be resistance to anxiety. The Ten Commandments, of which the Sabbath command is the fourth, appear twice in the story of Israel's journey from Egypt to promised land, their journey from uh, enslavement and imprisonment to liberation. And I just hear what uh, Judith was saying earlier about, about this being prison week, as we hear the echoes of the move from imprisonment to liberation echoing in our minds. So the Ten Commandments are there in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses first receives them from God on Mount Sinai. And they're repeated in our reading today in Deuteronomy 5, as Israel now stands at the gates of the Promised Land. And the context for these commands is Israel's miraculous release from the exploitative environment of Pharaoh's Egypt. These commandments are the new rule of life for the people of God, replacing the absolutist demand of the Pharaoh. 
and the commandments stand in stark contrast to what came before them. Pharaoh's commands were oppressive, but God's commandments are liberating. Pharaoh's commands were based on hatred of the other, but God's commands are based on the love of God and the love of neighbour. Pharaoh's commands were a constant source of anxiety as his own insecurity led him to make his ever more impossible demands on Israel. But the Ten Commandments are an invitation to a new way of living which is non-anxious, based on a trusting relationship with God and drawing out gentle faithfulness in response. If you read through the list of the Ten Commandments, what you find is that the first three commandments of God are to do with God's exclusive claim over Israel. Never again will they give their allegiance to any other ruler, whether human or divine, and so they're told have no other gods before the Lord. Don't make any idols and don't make a wrongful use of God's name. The first three are about Israel in relationship to God and God's exclusive claim on Israel. No more pharaohs. Now it's just God. But then the final six commands are all to do with relating to your neighbour. Honouring your parents, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, bearing false witness or coveting. And the bridge between the first three, about how Israel is to relate to God, and the final six, which are about how Israel is to relate to themselves and those around them, the bridge is the fourth commandment, and it is the keeping of Sabbath. There is something here about the intentional reverence for time. The setting aside of potentially productive hours that is key to allowing Israel to shift from a world where every moment is demanded from them by the Pharaoh to a new world where life is a gift to be treasured before God. There had been no Sabbath in Egypt, no work stoppage for Pharaoh who himself worked day and night to stay atop the social pyramid of Israel's elite and no work stoppage for the Israelite slaves, who you may remember were instructed to use their time off to gather the straw for the bricks they had to make. In fact, there was no work stoppage at any time for anyone in the Egyptian world because the frantic productivity of Egypt drove their entire system. Does that frantic productivity that drive, does that sound familiar to you? I fear that we drive ourselves back to Egypt as a society and sometimes even as Christian communities, the push to productivity, to more and more effort, to achieve, to stay afloat, to keep going. And yet, in the Ten Commandments, the Lord God nullifies such systems of anxious production. There is, there is a better way to be human. And so God places limits on how much work it is right for a human to do. God commands times of rest 
of recovery, of relaxation. And those who obey this command break the anxiety cycle. We, like ancient Israel, are invited to an awareness that life does not consist in a whirlwind of frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone else to threat or competitor. Many of you will know that I enjoy swimming. I'm a regular visitor to the Oasis pool just around the corner from the church. And some days I get into church and I think to myself, I really ought to go for a swim today. And then I look at my to-do list for the day and then I open my emails and I've had another 40 come in overnight. And I know I've got a sermon to prepare and to write and some other things I need to write and I know I've got some people I need to see and a hospital visit to do and I think to myself, do you know, I think I just need to power through today. I don't think I've got time to go swimming. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that what your days are like sometimes? What I have discovered and what I need to constantly remind myself of is that if I do take an hour out, and I go to the pool and I swim for half an hour, I end up at the end of the day reviewing my day far more positively than if I had just stayed at my desk. As I often say to myself, the hardest part about swimming a mile is picking up your kit bag. My point is that sometimes it takes effort to stop. It takes a decision to break the cycle of productivity. But taking that decision can also then break the spiral of anxiety and stress and pressure and create a place in our lives for a far more balanced existence. The divine insight behind the Sabbath command is that work stoppage permits a waning of anxiety and allows energy to be redeployed elsewhere and particularly into acts of neighbourliness, into caring for the other. The Sabbath command, you remember, is the bridge from a focus on God to a focus on other people and how we relate together. The world envisaged by the Sabbath command is an anxiety-free world of well-being. And it's based on the fact that God is anxiety-free. God is not a workaholic. God is not a micromanager. God is not a pharaoh. God does not keep hiking up the production schedules on those who follow him. The Protestant work ethic or Catholic guilt are not divine commands. The Ten Commandments do not contain the advice that if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again, and then try harder, and then try again, and keep on trying, and don't give up. That is not in the Ten Commandments, my friends. To the contrary, God rests confident, serene, and at peace. At the end of six days creating, God rests. And God's rest, moreover, bestows on humanity a restfulness, or at least a possibility for restfulness, that contradicts the drivenness of the systems of Pharaoh. And so humans are commanded to rest. And while they rest, to be sure that their neighbours rest alongside them. 
And this means creating systems of rest that contradict the world's systems of anxiety. We are no longer subject to Pharaoh. We are instead called to creative restfulness, which finds its basis in God, a restfulness which is politically viable and economically significant. Rest should not just be for the privileged few. Rest should be for all, for sons and daughters, for slaves and cattle, for immigrants and asylum seekers. And so, of course, as is often the case with uh, my sermons, we have to have an eye on the society in which we live and how we, as those who are not owned by that society, can be the generators of a wider vision for the common good, where all have the support they need to rest. The Sabbath, you see, calls us to do more than just take off one day per week. It calls us to build a society where all are released from the anxious burdens of productivity, where enough is enough and where life is more than commodity. And so God invites the people of God, you and me, to a new life of neighbourly freedom in which the Sabbath is the cornerstone of restful resistance to anxiety. Sabbath declares in bodily ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. We will not be defined by busyness and by acquisitiveness and by the relentless pursuit of more in either our economics or our personal relations or indeed anywhere in our lives because life does not consist in commodity. It's no wonder, is it, that Jesus invited his disciples out of the anxiety system. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the following. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Matthew chapter 6. And behind Jesus's sermon, away from anxiety, lies the words of Moses. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your town, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. It turns out, you see, that these other gods 
that the first three commandments were calling Israel to resist. You shall have no other gods before me, says God. It turns out that these other gods are the agents and occasions of anxiety. And we shall not allow them to have dominion over us. Rather, we, by discipline, by resolve, by baptism, by Eucharist and by passion, we resist such idols and their seductions. And in doing so, we stand alongside our Creator, in whose image we are made. Sabbath, you see, is the school for our desires. Taking a break is an expose and critique of those false desires focused on idolatry and greed. When we do not pause for Sabbath, these false desires take power over us. But Sabbath is our chance to embrace our true identity and to find our rest in the God of love. I'm going to conclude by reading a short poem by Wendell Berry. It's quoted by Nicholas Lee in her book on Sabbath, which I commend to you. Wendell Berry writes, I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me, like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labour, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it, and we sing, and the day turns, and the trees move. A moment of silence and rest. I'm going to invite Udoka to come up now. Those of you who were here a few weeks ago, remember I mentioned uh, that Udoka has got some really interesting insights onto, on the concept of uh, rest as protest. So Udoka, can I invite you to tell us a little bit about what's meant by that and what it means to you? That would be really, that would be really great. Yeah, so can everyone hear me? Okay, fantastic. Um, so people might be familiar with see, seeing the term self-care bandied around increasingly in the past couple of years something that seems somewhat linked to the idea of feminism, but kind of just nebulously applied to things like bath bombs, bathing, you know, that kind of thing. And it all comes from the work of Audre Lorde, who is a was a feminist poet and theorist who lived um, up until the late 90s. Can we, and can we catch her name again? What's her name? Audre, oh, Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde, thank you. Um, 
and she um, was an activist and she also um, wrote extensively about living with cancer and the whole concept of self-care and what for me um, where rest as protest comes from is the idea that being a black woman in a marginalized um, state in a society that puts a lot of stresses and pressures on you um, choosing to rest as opposed to constantly go go going as capitalism wants us to do as different forces in society want us to do can be really powerful because it affirms your value as a human being regardless of what you create and what you produce regardless of how people see you based on your race your religion your ethnicity your gender your sexuality and all these things and it just says that you as a human being just by virtue of existing you are worthy of giving yourself kindness and being shown kindness um, which in the context of a post-slavery society, I think is a very powerful thing, but it's something that I've certainly learned from and applied more broadly than that. Um, and I think that it's something that is really interesting, um, rereading the Ten Commandments, because it's, it feels like we're so familiar with them. Like we're always hearing about them. They're written on many walls of the Sunday schools in our childhood. But the idea that before you had all this pro Protestant work, work ethic and all this other stuff, you had rest as being central to the identity of the earliest, earliest Jewish populations. Um, and it's so easy to, to fall away from that, but it's something that we can be empowered by, not only in our faith lives, but in our pursuit of justice as um, socially justice-minded people and Christians as well. Thank you. So. Could you just say a little bit more about how this has impacted your understanding of yourself? Yeah. Um, so I was raised as um, my, my family, my mum and my father are immigrants from Nigeria. Um, and part of the quite typical immigrant um, child thing is the huge anxiety around um, education because um, when you arrive in um, a country and there's lots of racial discrimination. Um, the thing that people can't take away from you is what my mum would always say is your education. And um, that would be a path to, in spite of racism, ideally um, acquire wealth and status and, and, and what's most important is stability. And um, there's this kind of generic thing of like the daughters of immigrant families being incredibly stressed out because not only are you trying to do well for your own sake, but you have all this pressure resting on you um, to represent your family. And also um, if you do badly and you're one of the only black kids in the class, then is that a reflection on all the other black kids and potential of black people in general? So um, and even as someone who is you know, part of maybe like the third or fourth or fifth generation of Africans to arrive in the, into the UK, it was still a very present anxiety. So through to the age of 18, I was an incredibly studious, incredibly um, intensely hardworking student, you know, straight A's until I had what could, what in hindsight was a little bit of a breakdown when I didn't get into my top, top uni and I got a B rather than an A for the first time. And it was incredibly stressful. And it took me quite a while to recover from that, um, to recover from the the, the attack on myself, what I perceived as an attack on my self-esteem, because it's like, if I can't be productive in this particular way, 
and I've built my entire identity for the past 18 years of my life around being this kind of person, then what's left? And um, what it taught me was not only just the importance of rest, but the importance of decoupling our notions of what is valuable about ourselves from um, capitalist notions. Um, it's, not, it's not saying that work is not important, but it's saying that it in no way is the most important or vital thing about the people that we are. When I think about my friends or my family, I don't think about the fact necessarily that, oh, um, they, got, they have this PhD or they're doing this amazing thing at work. That's a really cool thing about them. But so many more of us, especially considering that so many of us deal with maybe chronic illness or things that make it hard for us to work. I have ADHD, so it's really hard for me to focus, um, which also is really harmful when refusing to rest. Um, I think about people's smiles. I think about their, their laughs sound incredibly funny, or I think about the way that they walk or the way that they dance a certain way and never um, focusing just on how hard they work or how much they can punish themselves in pursuit of one particular goal. Um, and that allows me to not only see them in a far more expansive and loving way, but also see myself with a lot more grace and love. Um, when you were speaking a bit about um, swimming, I actually had a bit of an insight coming to church this morning and I was on Instagram, which is the worst place in the world when it comes to not to like resisting anxiety and trying to rest because you're constantly being confronted with all the versions of yourself you could be. <laughs> and um, if you just worked a little bit harder, but um, my version of swimming is weightlifting. I'm very into um, like weightlifting. And I was just introduced to the concept of deloading, which is every couple of weeks when you're training, um, you have at least one or two weeks where you're not lifting as heavy. So you maybe half the weight or you just do yoga for a, a bit. And in contrast to like that Arnold Schwarzenegger school of weightlif weightlifting, where it's like, if it's not seven days a, days a week, you are basically doing nothing and you might as well just go home. Um, the idea of doing less, like strategically doing less, um, actually is really good for your muscles and really good for your mentality and is actually very positive and you can come back to it strengthened. And I had hadn't heard of it before and I tried it and I was like, oh, this feels a lot better. I feel a lot stronger. So in every possible sense from the biological to the emotional to the spiritual, um, we have these like still small voices saying, calm down, rest a little, relax. And it's really important, I think, in our spiritual lives when we're praying, to constantly make space for just sitting down and I guess vegging out a little bit because it's really positive for us. Idoka, thank you so much. That's been really profound and really helpful and I'm grateful for your honesty and for your sharing. So thank you so much. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, we thank you this morning for your constant presence, for shining through the shadows of our lives and shedding light onto our dark places, for calling us to a higher place of praise where we can reckon with our sins, but also embrace you, worship you, and be lifted by your everlasting love. As we are reminded of the meaning of the Sabbath, we express gratitude for our rest, 
those moments devoted to building inner peace that we managed to carve out from our active schedules for, as it has been written, to men alone time is elusive, to men with God time is eternity in disguise. O Lord, we pray for those who struggle to enjoy the Sabbath because of the burdens placed upon them, the countless physical, material, psychological and cultural constraints that prevent so many of our brothers and sisters from conquering space to sanctify time. As we enter prison week, we think especially of those who are in jail, whose loss of personal freedom can also result in a loss of spiritual freedom. May your word reach them, as we recall what the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. O oh Lord, we pray for those whose Sabbath is plagued by war, endemic violence and oppression. Those was bid for peace, tranquility, serenity and repose is thwarted by aggression and the unprincipled use of force. As we witness the tragic events unfolding in Palestine, Ukraine and several other countries, may we bear in mind that the holiday is not given to the individual in isolation but in relationships to his fellows. Let's curb our own appetite for power and strive collectively towards harmony, understanding and goodwill to allow all people to set that day apart, fostering reconciliation where hatred flares up. As we read in the Exodus, you shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. O Lord, we pray for those whose Sabbath is threatened or undermined by pressures coming from work, scarcity and fear. For too often we overlook how important security is in freeing people from the tyranny of need. May we appreciate that as it has been put, in the tempestuous ocean of time and toil, there are highlands of stillness where man may enter a harbor and reclaim his dignity. But may we also ensure that everyone has the proper means to enter that harbor 
and reclaim that dignity. For even today, as the Proverbs tell us, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest can be enough to drive some of the most vulnerable into poverty. Oh Lord, we finally pray for ourselves. May we be shielded from the anxieties of this world and be able to escape the evils that beset us in our day of relief, happiness and delight. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make their face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up their countenance upon you and give you peace.